0: This is episode 52 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the life of Nate Leipzig. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 52. Quick question. Have you joined the Magic Detective group page on Facebook yet? If not, please go do that now. Um, I'm really anxious to get uh, to start a dialogue among the readers and listeners of the podcast and of the blog um, I wasn't able to do that on the Facebook page. I didn't realize when I first made it that it had restrictions. And one of those main restrictions is is you guys can't put posts. You can respond in comments, but you can't make your own posts. So that's why I decided to go ahead and make the uh, Facebook group page. And it's a private page also, so you've got to ask to join. And, um, and, of course, I'm not going to turn anybody down, but um, – That's also so that if we want to share secrets and things, hey, we can do that, too, because it's a private group. You know, magic secrets, of course. What kind of things am I looking for on posts in the group? Well, initially, of course, magic history. But um, I'd also like to focus on the podcasts. So, for example, today I'm doing a podcast on Nate Leipzig. If you happen to have any ephemera devoted to Nate Leipzig or posters or photos you could share, that would be awesome, just an, a way to kind of fill out the, the podcast. Um, perhaps you could do a, a video of your rendition of one of your favorite Nate Leipzig routines, and you'd be surprised. You might actually have one and not realize it. Another thing I want to mention really quick I have to give a big shout out to David Sandy and Lance Rich for their incredible Zoom show called The Magic Collector's Corner. Last week, they did a tribute to Doug Henning, and it was awesome. I loved every second. They even had Julie Newmar on, who was on Doug's first TV special. It was just a joy to listen to. I think they did a recording of it, so you can, if you go to their Facebook group page, Uh, You can take a listen over there. It's a couple hours long. It's incredible. Chuck Romano shares his unbelievable collection of Doug Henning props and memorabilia, and it's just the more he shows, the more mind-boggling it gets. Um, This weekend, uh, Sunday, I believe they're doing another show, another Zoom show, uh, this time a tribute to Tenyo. And I'm not sure the times, so you have to go to the Facebook group page called Magic Collectors Corner to get all the information on that, and I encourage you to do so. It's kind of funny that they put this um, Magic Collector Corner Zoom show out because I was contemplating doing a Magic Detective Zoom show. I was teetering on it, uh, but then I decided to go in a different direction, which is... um, Virtual magic shows and ticketed shows, which I'm involved in at the moment. Um, I am going to do something with Zoom and the Magic Detective, but it's not going to be anything near what um, what the Magic Collectors Corner is. And I, I, you know, they've got oh, they're just crushing it. I just have so much respect for them. What I want to do is is a very small uh, particular thing. So uh, we'll get to that in the future. No time to talk about it right now. This week, we did have a winner for the Magic Detective Podcast Contest number 51, and the winner was uh, Rick P. from Wichita, Kansas. And um, by the way, Rick, your prize is sitting in my car. <laughs> I haven't taken it to the post office yet, but I will shortly, hopefully this weekend. And oh, by the way, the answer to last week's question was Ricciardi Jr., A bunch of people got it, but Rick got it first, so that was cool. And speaking of contests, why not do contest number 52, huh? I think so. So here's the question. Listen up. The great Lafayette had a dog whom he loved. His dog's name was Beauty. Houdini gave Lafayette the dog as a gift. In what city... Did he give him the dog? Now, I'll say that one more time. The great Lafayette had a dog whom he loved. His dog's name was Beauty. Houdini gave Lafayette the dog as a gift. In what city did he give him the dog? I'll take all the right answers and put them in a hat, and I'll draw one from a hat, uh, and that person will win a prize next week. So don't forget, just send your, uh, the answers to um, info at carnegiemagic.com and make sure you put in the subject heading contest number 52. All right. And now let's get moving on to today's uh, today's subject. A few years ago, I first wrote an article about Nate Leipzig for the Magic Detective blog, and I started out by saying, how in the world did I miss this guy? Because there are a lot of people in magic history that you hear about, but sometimes you don't really know so much about. So today, I'd like to share with you a little bit about the life of one of those men. Our feature today was born Nathan Leipziger in Stockholm, Sweden, on May 31st, 1873. He came to America in 1883, so he missed the 1880 census, and sadly, the 1890 census does not exist. It was destroyed years ago in a fire. But he does show up in the 1900 U.S. census. The reason I bring this uh, census records up is because they add some interesting information that is sometimes different than what you find in autobiographies. Uh, Nate states his father was from Russia and his mother from Utica, New York. However, the census records state that his parents were both from Poland. And in 1900, he was 27 and still living at home and working as an optician. It is possible his mother was born in Poland, moved to the U.S., and that's where the mother and father met. It's possible. Also, depending upon the area of Poland, where his father was from, it could have been considered Russia at some point. But then again, perhaps he was doing what many people did at the time, and he was rewriting his own history. How he discovered magic is something interesting. The Leipzig book by Lewis Ganson says, Nate developed an early interest in magic most probably from his mother's oldest brother who had once been with a circus and who sometimes did tricks for the family. Now, when I first read this, I was a bit suspicious of that word, most probably. But I discovered in the autobiography of Nate Leipzig that Uh, That very story of an uncle from the circus who showed tricks, there it was. So that's in Nate's own words. What was interesting is that a couple of his brothers also showed interest in magic, though he was the only one that the magic really stuck with. His brother, Fred Leipziger, loved magic, but would go on to become a famous cartoonist. However, uh, Fred did keep up with magic as a hobby, and his death in 1936 is even covered in the Sphinx magazine. Soon, Nate acquired some small apparatus, some spirit slates and things like that, and was soon doing little shows around Detroit. Then one day, he was given a beat-up old book with no cover called The Secret Out, According to Nate, that book played no small part in his success. This book opened a whole new world for him as it explained far more tricks than he had ever expected to learn. In fact, it taught him the rudiments of sleight of hand and quickly his skill level began to change. He apparently felt that if he read about a trick in a book, it was his duty to recreate the effect using his own methods. It was this unusual philosophy that caused him to not only impress other magicians, but everyone who watched him perform. Now, I'm always curious what magicians think of the old-time performers, and here's a very revealing piece, Lipsig's recollection of the great Herman. To me, it was a marvelous evening, the first full show of magic I'd ever seen. There was never anyone to equal Herman in his own style of magic. He held you by his appearance alone the moment he stepped onto the stage. The very first thing he did stumped me completely. Smiling at the audience, he showed his wand, ran his fingers along it to the top, and there appeared a real orange. He showed so many wonderful effects, it'd be hard to enumerate them, and he kept a vein of humor running throughout all of his tricks. It was a most memorable night for a lad who had seen very few magicians, mostly second raiders up until that time. Nate visited Wonderland and Temple Theaters and the Detroit Opera House whenever a magician appeared. He said he thus met Leon Herman, Harry Keller, Houdini, Howard Thurston, Carl Germain, and many others. In these years, Nate Leipzig was not making a living as a magician, but rather he was working as an optician. But things would soon change. In 1901, Nate was asked to become a partner in an act by Beryl & Beryl, which was a rag pictures act. Now this alone... Was fascinating to me as I had never heard of this term, rag pictures. In fact, I was so curious about rag pictures that I tracked down a book on rag pictures, which was no easy task. In fact, I've only seen two books on the subject. One was written by Will Goldston and the other by Eric Hawksworth for Supreme Magic. Well, the Will Goldston book is really hard to get a hold of, so I ended up with the Supreme Magic book. And I originally wrote this section, a very long section, based upon the information from that book. But I later found in the Nate Leipzig autobiography where he shares in detail what the act was. So this next section is in Nate Leipzig's own words. The stage was set with a large picture frame, some 15 feet square, covered with black velvet. Sitting in front of it was a painter. In pantomime, he showed he had no paints to work with and was very despondent about it. A rag picker entered and opened his bag, tumbling out rags of all colors. The painter seized the idea of using the rags, and the two went to work, and by making use of the rags and various articles laying about, in a minute and a half produced a beautiful marine scene in which the spotlight was thrown. Then by simply shaking the black velvet, all the rags and everything fell to the floor. They went on to make three pictures. One, a snow scene was very effective as they used cotton from inside pillows for the snow effect. The last, which took them only 30 seconds, was a dog's head for which they used some rugs from the floor. The act was a very great success. Joining this act would mean Nate would have to leave home for the first time. His family did not have high hopes for his future with this venture. But, as unique and novel as the act sounds, there was something they hadn't planned on. Well, it turns out there was another Barrel brother. There were actually three of them. And one of these other Barrel brothers hired a woman to do the exact same act with him. And they decided to call their act... Barrel and Barrel, which is what Nate's act was going to be called with the other Barrel Brother. So Nate Leipzig's show, his career was uh, cut short pretty fast. I say that, but that's not exactly true because here's where a stroke of luck comes his way. J. Warren Keen was a vaudeville magician who needed to find a quick replacement for his act, and he called Nate, who had never done magic in vaudeville before. But Nate, agreed to give it a try and began to perform at Proctor's in New York. Well, it turns out he was a huge hit. The same reason that magicians were bowled over by Nate was the same reason that audiences were. He did tricks that no one had ever seen before, and if they had, he did them differently than everyone else. In other words, he was highly original. After appearing at Proctor's for only two days, he received word that none other than William Morris wanted to see him. Nate showed up at his office and Morris offered Nate a contract to tour the Keith circuit. Now consider this, you don't find a bigger agent than William Morris, and Nate was brand new in the vaudeville world, yet he had the bravery to haggle over the pay. Nate requested more than Morris was offering and they argued over it and Morris agreed to To the increase in pay. He knew that Nate was worth it. Nate was making history with his act. He would be the first person to do an all-card act in big-time vaudeville. His act relied strictly upon sleight of hand. At first, there were many who had heard this and they assumed that he would crash and burn. But the exact opposite was true. In fact, from what I've read, every magician who went to see Nate came away a fan. He was a master manipulator, certainly an innovator par excellence. Here's a write-up of Nate from a 1904 issue of Mahatma magazine. The event of the month was the appearance of Nate Leipzig at Keith's. Advertised as the equal with coins of T. Nelson Downs and cards of Howard Thurston, he had a discouraging land to stagger under. However... It was agreeable to be able to say that Leipzig came up to all expectations. In fact, he combines the best work ever seen here in the three most difficult specialty branches, cards, coins, and billiard balls. He's a clean-cut young fellow, and Keith's audiences gave him much applause for his quiet and earnest deportment, as well as his fine work. All in all, his most acceptable work was with his thimble trick, Lipzig is one of our boys, and the fraternity should be proud of him. Magicians were taking notice of the youngster. The king of coins, T. Nelson Downs, was bragging about a coin flourish that Lipzig had created. Tenichi from Japan was so impressed with Nate that he asked to meet him and traded methods of his thumb tie routine for Nate's ring on stick routine. Nate's act consisted of manipulations with thimbles, billiard balls, cards, and and card tricks, like the rising card. He also presented vest-turning, rag on -on stick, and the magnetized knife. By 1904, Nate decided to change his name from Nate Lipsiger to the shortened version that we all know, Leipzig. In 1906, he was offered a tour of Europe, and he became a big success over there. The one difference between Nate's work overseas is that he often had the opportunity to perform before royalty. He performed before Edward VII and Queen Alexandra, George V and Queen Mary of England, Empress Eugenie of France, the King and Queen of Spain, and the King and Queen of Denmark. There's a a funny story from his autobiography that has something to do with the king it turns out that uh, he was on board a ship and Nate had met a fellow named Mr. Sullivan who at one time had been in charge of the royal laundry at Buckingham Palace. The book says, Mr. Sullivan, it seems, had never ceased hearing tell of my performance of Ledger at Buckingham Palace before King Edward and Queen Alexandra when they were entertaining the King and Queen of Denmark. He excitedly drew me into his cabin two full-dress shirts reposed on the man's bunk. Sullivan said, These were once the property of King Edward, and I'm going to give you one. I know you won't be able to wear it because it's only a size 17, but I think you'll appreciate it as a souvenir. Lipsy goes on to say that he was thrilled to have the king's shirt, but later he was telling a man from South Africa, a Mr. A. Goldman, who was a leading bookmaker there, he was telling him the story of the shirt, and suddenly Goldman stopped him and said, Nate, that's my size. I'd give anything in the world to own that shirt. And as he had been kind to Nate on many occasions, well, Nate fell and gave it to him, and afterwards he felt very sorry that he did. He returned to the States for a few months, but in 1908, he was heading back to England for more work. It was on this tour that he met Lila, who had become his wife. Over the years, he would continue to travel the globe and return to the U.S., but when World War I broke out, Nate had an interesting predicament. Because of his German-sounding name, he was forced on that occasion to alter it, and one of the alterations was Nate Lincoln. Nate was the first magician to ever be presented the gold medal of the Magic Circle in London for supreme skill. There's another great story Nate shares in his autobiography. He had heard that Albini was in town. By the way, episode 27 of the podcast is about Albini, so you should go check that out. Anyway, Albini was known to be a great card man, and he was also known for his extreme language. In other words, he had a really foul mouth. Well, Nate is at the Geese's restaurant with a bunch of other magicians when Herbert Albini shows up at the restaurant. And I'll let Nate tell the rest of the story, so this is in his words. They asked me to do some card tricks, and I had heard of Albini's skills, so I decided to do some of my best. I didn't expect to hear much from Albini, but to my surprise, he said, You? the best card man I have ever seen in my life. But what the blankety blank 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 are you doing in this hick town? Go out and make some money. End quote. Another story he shares was meeting Alan Shaw, the coin manipulator, and having an opportunity to show Shaw some of his magic. He demonstrated his signature coin roll and a few other things Lipsig said that Shaw hardly responded. In fact, he was kind of rude. Well, fast forward a little bit, and Horace Golden is in town and runs into Nate, and he shares with him the story of running into Alan Shaw. Well, it turns out that Shaw couldn't wait to share his latest invention with Golden, his new coin roll. Then Golden, who knew better, called him out and said, So, when were you last in Detroit? And Shaw responded with, Oh, yeah, I've heard there's a fellow there who's already ripping me off. Yeah, right. Lipsig was known to not be offended when other people took his material, but in this instant he did admit that it did hurt him. And yes, the coin roll over the fingers was the creation of Nate Leipzig, who also could roll coins not only over the back of his fingers, but on the inside of his fingers as well. Over time, Nate began to slow his performing schedule down. He seemed to have a keen sense that vaudeville was coming to an end, and he switched gears to more private functions. He remained one of the most influential and original magicians of all time, he also picked up three students that he taught and shared his magic with. Those students were Roy Benson, Fred Keating, and John Scarney. And of course, his magic greatly influenced Di Vernon, who wrote the book, along with Lewis Ganson, Di Vernon's tribute to Nate Leipzig. One of the lessons he imparted to his students was to never make a sucker out of a spectator. In other words, he was against embarrassing or humiliating a spectator. Nate also believed in a natural approach to magic. He was against the fancy flourishes and the finger flinging. He wanted things to be as simple and mystifying as possible. His one exception to the rule was the flourish that he had developed, and the one that most everyone in magic eventually learns but probably doesn't know who created it, the coin roll. From a historical perspective, I found a great article in the November 1932 edition of the Sphinx magazine by Nate Leipzig. It has to do with the famous Dr. Lin... And a routine that he performed. It appears that while performing at an open air fair in Toledo, Ohio, Nate ran into a man calling himself Dr. Lynn. This man was at one time an assistant to the real Dr. Lynn, but later went out on his own. And I couldn't help but wonder if this guy could be the Dr. Lynn that young Eric Weiss saw in Milwaukee. Lipsey goes on to share an effect that Lynn showed him it's the penetration of two coins through a hat. It's a pretty fascinating effect. Leipzig made his last stage appearance on May 29, 1939. It was at the National Conference of the Society of American Magicians in New York. He had been the president of the SAM at the time, and he retired from that position a couple days later. Nate had been in poor health the last few months of his life. Whether or not he knew it, it was cancer that would eventually get him. Nate Leipzig died on October 13, 1939, He'd had a long and influential career in magic, and his insight and magic live on today in the acts of many performers. One of the things that is prominent in every review, every remembrance of the man, was how kind he was. Nate had greatly contributed to the world of magic. Of course, his coin roll is iconic. His side steal is another great card move. He created a unique and very magical magnetized cane effect. And a lot of people credit him with the Sympathetic Cards or the Sympathetic 13. That was actually an adaptation of a trick first created by Ellis Stanyan, but his uh, Nate's version is fantastic. Di Vernon's tribute to Nate Leipzig by Lewis Ganson is chalked full of great Leipzig material. One of my favorite Leipzig tricks is the cigars from purse, and there is a version of this in John Carney's excellent book called Secrets. And one more thing from Nate Leipzig was his Torn and Restored Cigarette Paper that no less than Doug Henning featured on one of his network TV specials. Now, if you're curious about the Leipzig autobiography, to my knowledge, it never made it into book form. It was unfinished. What was written ended up in the pages of Mum magazine in the year 1953, over six issues, But the Tribute to Nate Leipzig book is still available, and you should get the copy if you don't already have one. And that, my friends, is going to do it for this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please like the episode by whatever means your podcast provider gives you to like it. So if there's a little heart there, click that. If there's a thumbs up button, click that. Whatever it is, click it. All right. And if you, by the way, if you listen on iTunes or uh, Apple podcasts, please consider giving me a five-star review if you think it's worth it. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Magic Detective podcast. My name is Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. I will see you all again soon. Be safe and be well.